Section 5 of Chateau and Country Life in France. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lisa Borden. Chateau and Country Life in France by Mary King Waddington. Chapter 2, Part 3. We didn't move often once we were settled in the chateau for the autumn. It was very difficult to get W. away from his books and coins and his woods, but occasionally a shooting party tempted him. We went sometimes, about the Toussaint, when the leaves were nearly fallen, to stay with friends who had a fine chateau and estate about three hours by rail from Paris, in the midst of the great plains of the Aube. The first time we went, soon after my marriage, I was rather doubtful as to how I should like it. I had never stayed in a French country house, and imagined it would be very stiff and formal. However, the invitation was for three days, two days of shooting and one of rest, and I thought that I could get through that without being too homesick. We arrived about 4.30 for tea. The journey from Paris was through just the same uninteresting country one always sees when leaving by the Gare de l'Est. I think it is the ugliest sortie of all Paris. As we got near the chateau, the Seine appeared, winding in and out of the meadows in very leisurely fashion. We just saw the house from the train, standing rather low. The station is at the park gates. In fact, the railway and the canal run through the property. Two carriages were waiting. We were not the only guests, and a covered cart for the maids and baggage. A short drive through a fine avenue of big trees skirting broad lawns brought us to the house, which looked very imposing with its long façade and rows of lighted windows. We drove through arcades covered with ivy into a very large courtyard, the chateau stables and commons, taking three sides. There was a pièce d'eau at one end, a colombier at the other. There was no perron or stately entrance. In one corner, a covered porch, rather like what one sees in England, shut in with glass door and windows and filled with plants, a good many chrysanthemums, which made a great mass of color. The hall doors were wide open as the carriage drove up, Monsieur A and his wife waiting for us just inside, Madame A, his mother, the mistress of the chateau, at the door of the salon. We went into a large high hall, well-lighted, a bright fire burning, plenty of servants, it looked most cheerful and comfortable on a dark November afternoon. We left our wraps in the hall and went straight into the drawing room. It was a corner room, high ceiling, big windows, and fine tapestries on the walls, some of them with a pink ground, very unusual and much envied and admired by all art collectors. Madame A told me she found them all rolled up in a bundle in the garret when she married. A tea table was standing before the sofa and various people working and having their tea. We were not a large party, Comte and Comtesse de B, she is a daughter of the house, and three or four men, deputies and senators, all political. They counted eight guns. We sat there about half an hour. Then there was a general move, and young Madame A showed us our rooms, which were most comfortable, fires burning, lamps lighted. She told us dinner was at 7.30. The first bell would ring at 7. I was the only lady besides the family. I told my maid to ask some of the others what their mistresses were going to wear. She said ordinary evening dress with natural flowers in their hair, and that I would receive a small bouquet, which I did, 
Only as I never wear anything in my hair, I put them on my corsage, which did just as well. The dinner was pleasant, the dining room a fine large hall, had been stables, with a fireplace at each end and big windows giving on the courtyard. It was so large that the dinner table, we were fourteen, seemed lost in space. The talk was almost exclusively political and amusing enough. All the men were, or had been, deputies, and every possible question was discussed. Madame A. was charming, very intelligent, and animated, having lived all her life with clever people, and having taken part in all the changes that France has gone through in the last fifty years. She had been a widow for about two years when I first stayed there, and it was pretty to see her children with her. Her two sons, one married, the other a young officer, were so respectful and fond of their mother, and her daughter perfectly devoted to her. The men all went off to smoke after coffee, and we women were left to ourselves for quite a long time. The three ladies all had work, knitting or crochet, and were making little garments, brassieres, and petticoats for all the village children. They were quite surprised that I had nothing, and said they would teach me to crochet. The evening was not very long after the men came back. Some remained in the billiard room, which opens out of the salon, and played cachonnet, a favorite French game. We heard violent discussions as to the placing of the balls, and someone asked for a yard measure, to be quite sure the count was correct. Before we broke up, M.A. announced the program for the next day. Breakfast for all the men at eight o'clock in the dining room, and an immediate start for the woods. Luncheon at the Pavillon d'Hiver at twelve in the woods. The ladies invited to join the shooters and follow one or two battues afterward. It was a clear, cold night, and there seemed every prospect of a beautiful day for the batu. The next morning was lovely. I went to my maid's room, just across the corridor, to see the motors start. All our rooms looked out on the park, and on the other side of the corridor was a succession of small rooms giving on the courtyard, which were always kept for the maids and valets of the guests. It was an excellent arrangement, for in some of the big chateaux, where the servants were at the top of the house, or far off in another wing, Communications were difficult. There were two carriages and a sort of tapisserie following with guns, servants, and cartridges. I had a message from Madame A. asking if I had slept well and sending me the paper, and a visit from Comtesse de B., who I think was rather anxious about my garments. She had told me the night before that the plowed fields were something awful and hoped I had brought short skirts and thick boots. I think the sight of my short scotch homespun skirt and high boots reassured her. We started about 11.30 in an open carriage with plenty of furs and wraps. It wasn't really very cold, just a nice nip in the air, and no wind. We drove straight into the woods from the park. There is a beautiful green alley which faces one just going out of the gate, but it was too steep to mount in a carriage. The woods are very extensive, the roads not too bad, considering the season, extremely well kept. Every now and then, through an opening in the trees, we had a pretty view over the plains. As we got near the pavilion, we heard shots not very far off. Evidently, the shooters were getting hungry and coming our way. It was a pretty rustic scene as we arrived. The pavilion, a log house standing in a clearing, alleys branching off in every direction, a horse and cart which had brought the provisions from the chateau tied to one of the trees. It was shut in on three sides, wide open in front, a bright fire burning and a most appetizing table spread. Just outside, another big fire was burning, the cook waiting for the first sportsman to appear to begin his classic dishes. 
omelette au lard, and rajol de mouton. I was rather hungry and asked for a piece of the pain de ménage they had for the trekker, beaters. I like the brown country bread so much better than the little rolls and crisp loaves most people ask for in France. Besides our own breakfast, there was an enormous pot on the fire with what looked like an excellent, substantial soup for the men. In a few minutes, the party arrived. First the shooters, each man carrying his gun, then the game cart, which looked very well garnished, an army of beaters bringing up the rear. They made quite a picturesque group, all dressed in white. There have been so many accidents in some of the big shoots, people imprudently firing at something moving in the bushes, which proved to be a man and not a roebuck, that M.A. dresses all his men in white. The gentlemen were very cheerful and said they had had capital sport and were quite ready for their breakfast. We didn't linger very long at table, as the days were shortening fast, and we wanted to follow some of the batteaux. The beaters had their breakfast while we were having ours. We're all seated on the ground around a big kettle of soup, with huge hunks of brown bread on their tin plates. We started off with the shooters, some walking, some driving, and had one pretty batteaux of rabbits. After that, two of pheasants, which were most amusing. There were plenty of birds, and they came rocketing over our heads in fine style. I found that Comtesse de B was quite right about the necessity for short skirts and thick boots. We stood on the edge of a plowed field, which we had to cross afterward on our way home, and I didn't think it was possible to have such cakes of mud as we had in our boots. We scraped off some with sticks, but our boots were so heavy with what remained that the walk home was tiring. Madame A was standing at the hall door when we arrived and requested us not to come into the hall, but to go in by the lingerie entrance and up the back stairs, so I fancy we hadn't got much dirt off. I had a nice rest until 4.30 when I went down to the salon for tea. We had all changed our outdoor garments and got into rather smart day dresses. None of these ladies wore tea gowns. The men appeared about five. Some of them came into the salon notwithstanding their muddy boots, and then came the livre de chasse and the recapitulation of the game, which is always most amusing. Every man counted more pieces than his beater had found. The dinner and evening were pleasant, the guests changing a little. Two of the original party went off before dinner. Two others arrived, one of them a cabinet minister, finances. He was very clever and defended himself well when his policy was freely criticized. While we women were alone after dinner, Madame A showed me how to make crochet petticoats. She gave me a crochet needle and some wool and had wonderful patience for it seemed a most arduous undertaking to me, and all my rows were always crooked. However, I did learn, and have made hundreds since. All the children in our village pull up their little frocks and show me their crochet petticoats whenever we meet them. They are delighted to have them, for those we make are of good wool, not laine de bienfaisance, which is stiff and coarse, and last much longer than those one buys. The second day was quite different. There was no shooting, we were left to our own devices until 12 o'clock breakfast. W and I went for a short stroll in the park. We met M.A., who took us over the farm, also well-ordered and prosperous. After breakfast, we had about an hour of salon before starting for the regular tournée de propriétaire through park and gardens. The three ladies, Madame A., her daughter, and daughter-in-law, had beautiful work. Madame A. was making portieres for her daughter's room, 
a most elaborate pattern, reeds and high plants, a very large piece of work. The other two had also very complicated work, one a table cover, velvet, heavily embroidered, the other a church ornament. Almost all the French women of a certain monde turn their wedding dresses, usually of white satin, into a priest's vêtement. The Catholic priests have all sorts of vestments which they wear on different occasions, purple in Lent, red on any martyr's fête, white for all the fêtes of the Virgin. Some of the churches are very rich, with chasubles and altar cloths trimmed with fine old lace which have been given to them. It looks funny sometimes to see a very ordinary country curé, a farmer's son with a heavy peasant face wearing one of those delicate white satin chasubles. Before starting to join the shooters at breakfast, Madame A. took me all over the house. It is really a beautiful establishment, very large and most comfortable. Quantities of pictures and engravings and beautiful empire furniture. There was quite a large chapel at the end of the corridor on the ground floor where they have mass every Sunday. The young couple have a charming installation, really a small house, in one of the wings. Bedrooms, dressing rooms, boudoir, cabinet de travail, and a separate entrance so that Monsieur A. can receive anyone who comes to see him on business without having them pass through the chateau. Madame A. has her rooms on the ground floor at the other end of the house. Her sitting room, with glass door, opens into a winter garden filled with plants, which gives on the park. Her bedroom is on the other side, looking on the courtyard, a large library next it, Light and space everywhere, plenty of servants, everything admirably arranged. The evening mail goes out at 7.30, and every evening at 7 exactly, the letter carrier came down the corridor knocking at all the doors and asking for letters. He had stamps, too, at least French stamps. I could never get a foreign stamp, 25 centimes. Had to put one of 15 and two of five when I had a foreign letter. I don't really think there were any in the country. I don't believe they had a foreign correspondent of any description. It was a thoroughly French establishment of the best kind. We walked about the small park and gardens in the afternoon. The gardens are enormous. One can drive through them. Madame A drove in her pony carriage. They still have some lovely late roses, which filled me with envy. Ours were quite finished. The next day was not quite so fine, gray and misty, but a good shooting day, no wind. We joined the gentlemen for lunch in another pavilion further away and rather more open than the one of the other day. However, we were warm enough with our coats on, a good fire burning, and hot bricks for our feet. The Batus, aux échelles, that day were quite a new experience for me. I had never seen anything like it. The shooters were placed in a semicircle, not very far apart. Each man was provided with a high double ladder. The men stood on the top. The women seated themselves on the rungs of the ladders and hung on as well as they could. I went the first time with W, and he made me so many recommendations that I was quite nervous. I mustn't sit too high, or I would gêner him, as he was obliged to shoot down for the rabbits and I mustn't sit too low near the ground, or I might get shot in the ankles from one of the other men. I can't say it was an absolute pleasure. The seat, if seat it could be called, was anything but comfortable, and the detonation of the gun just over my head was decidedly trying. 
Still, it was a novelty, and if the other women could stand it, I could. For the second battue, I went with Comte de B. That was rather worse, for he shot much oftener than W, and I was quite distracted with the noise of the gun. We were nearer the other shooters, too, and I fancied their aim was very near my ankles. It was a pretty view from the top of the ladder. I climbed up when the battues were over. We looked over the park and through the trees, quite bare and stripped of their leaves on the great plains, with hardly a break of wood or hills stretching away to the horizon. The ground was thickly carpeted with red and yellow leaves, little columns of smoke rising at intervals where people were burning weeds or rotten wood in the fields, and just enough purple mist to poetize everything. B is a very careful shot. I was with him the first day at a rabbit battue where we were placed rather near each other, and every man was asked to keep quite to his own place and to shoot straight before him. After one or two shots, B stepped back and gave his gun to his servant. I asked what was the matter. He showed me the man next, evidently not used to shooting, who was walking up and down, shooting in every direction, and as fast as he could cram the cartridges into his gun. So he stepped back into the alley and waited until the battue was over. The party was much smaller that night at dinner. Everyone went away but W and me. The talk was most interesting, all about the war, the first days of the Assemblée Nationale at Bordeaux, and the famous visit of the Comte de Chambord to Versailles, when the Maréchal de MacMahon, President of the Republic, refused to see him. I told them of my first evening visit to Madame Thiers, the year I was married. Madame Thiers lived in a big, gloomy house in the Place Saint-Georges and received every evening. Monsieur Thiers, who was a great worker all his life and a very early riser, always took a nap at the end of the day. The ladies, Madame Don, a sister of Madame Thiers, lived with them, unfortunately had not that good habit. They took their little sleep after dinner. We arrived there. It was a long way from us as we lived near Arc de l'Etoile, one evening a little before ten. There were already four or five men, no ladies. We were shown into a large drawing room, Monsieur Chair standing with his back to the fireplace, the center of a group of black coats. He was very amiable, said I would find Madame Chair in a small salon just at the end of the big one, told W to join their group. He had something to say to him, and I passed on. I did find Madame Chair and Mademoiselle Don in the small salon at the other end, both asleep, each in an armchair. I was really embarrassed. They didn't hear me coming in and were sleeping quite happily and comfortably. I didn't like to go back to the other salon, where there were only men, so I sat down on a sofa and looked about me and tried to feel as if it was quite a natural occurrence to be invited to come in the evening and to find my hostess asleep. After a few minutes, I heard the swish of a satin dress coming down the big salon and a lady appeared very handsome and well-dressed, whom I did not know at all. She evidently was accustomed to the state of things. She looked about her smilingly, then came up to me, called me by name, and introduced herself. Madame A., the wife of an admiral, who I often met afterward. She told me not to mind. There wasn't the slightest intention of rudeness, that both ladies would wake up in a few minutes, quite unconscious of having really slept. 
We talked about ten minutes, not lowering our voices particularly. Suddenly, Madame Chair opened her eyes and was wide awake at once. How quietly we must have come in. She had only just closed her eyes for a moment. The lights tired her, etc. Mademoiselle Doan said the same thing, and then we went on talking easily enough. Several more ladies came in, but only two or three men. They all remained in the farther room, talking, or rather listening, to Monsieur Thiers. He was already a very old man, and when he began to talk, no one interrupted him. It was almost a monologue. I went back several times to the Place Saint-Georges, but took good care to go later, so that the ladies should have their nap over. One of the young diplomat's wives had the same experience, rather worse, for when the ladies woke up, they didn't know her. She was very shy, spent a wretched ten minutes before they woke, and was too nervous to name herself. She was half crying when her husband came to the rescue. We left the next morning early, as W. had people coming to him in the afternoon. I enjoyed my visit thoroughly, and told them afterward of my misgivings and doubts as to how I should get along with strangers for two or three days. I think they had rather the same feeling. They were very old friends of my husband's, and though they received me charmingly from the first, it brought a foreign and new element into their circle. Another interesting old chateau, most picturesque, with towers, moat, and a drawbridge, is Loret le Bocage, belonging to the Comte de S. It stands very well in a broad moat, the water clear and rippling and finishing in a pretty little stream that runs off through the meadows. The place is beautifully kept. Gardens, lawns, courts, in perfect order. It has no particular historic interest for the family, having been bought by the parents of the present owner. I was there the first time in very hot weather, the 14th of July, the French national fete commemorating the fall of the Bastille. I went for a stroll in the park the morning after I arrived, but I collapsed under a big tree at once, hadn't the energy to move. Everything looked so hot and not a breath of air anywhere. The moat looked glazed, so absolutely still under the bright summer sun. Big flies were buzzing and skimming over the surface, and the flowers and plants were drooping in their beds. Inside it was delightful, the walls so thick that neither heat nor cold could penetrate. The house is charming. The big drawing room, where we always sat, was a large, bright room with windows on each side and lovely views over park and gardens, and all sorts of family portraits and souvenirs dating from Louis XV to the Comte de Paris. The men of the family, all ardent royalists, have been for generations distinguished as soldiers and statesmen. One of them, a son of the famous Marshal de S., brought up in the last years of the reign of Louis XV, carried his youthful ardor and dreams of liberty to America and took part, as did so many of the young French nobles, in the great struggle for independence that was being fought out on the other side of the Atlantic. Soon after his return to France, he was named ambassador to Russia to the court of Catherine II and was supposed to have been very much in the good graces of that very pleasure-loving sovereign. He accompanied her on her famous trip to the Crimea, arranged for her by her minister and favorite, Potemkin, when fairy villages with happy populations, singing and dancing, sprang up in the road wherever she passed as if by magic.
quite dispelling her ideas of the poverty and oppression of some of her subjects. Among the portraits there is a miniature of the Empress Catherine. It is a fine, strongly marked face. She wears a high fur cap, a sort of military police with lace jabot and diamond star. The son of the Maréchal, also soldier and courtier, was aide-de-camp to Napoleon and made almost all his campaigns with him. His description of the Russian campaign and the retreat of the Grande Armée from Moscow is one of the most graphic and interesting that has ever been written of those awful days. His memoirs are quite charming. Childhood and early youth passed in the country in all the agonies of the terror, simply and severely brought up in an atmosphere absolutely hostile to any national or popular movement. The young student, dreaming of a future and regeneration for France, arrived one day in Paris, where an unwanted stir denoted that something was going on. He heard and saw the young Republican General Bonaparte addressing some regiments. He marked the proud bearing of the men, even the recruits, and in an explosion of patriotism, his vocation was decided. He enlisted at once in the Republican ranks. It was a terrible decision to confide to his family, and particularly to his grandfather, the old Maréchal de S., a glorious veteran of many campaigns and an ardent royalist. His father approved, although it was a terrible falling off from all the lessons and examples of his family. But it was a difficult confession to make to the Maréchal. I will give the scene in his own words, translated, of course. The original is in French. I was obliged to return to Chalinois to relate my coup de tête to my grandfather. I arrived early in the morning and approached his bed in the most humble attitude. He said to me very sharply, You have been unfaithful to all the traditions of your ancestors, but it is done. Remember that you have enlisted voluntarily in the Republican Army. Serve it frankly and loyally, for your decision is made. You cannot now go back on it. Then, seeing the tears running down my cheeks, he too was moved and taking my hand with the only one he had left, he drew me to him and pressed me on his heart. Then, giving me seventy louis, it was all he had, he added, This will help you to complete your equipment. Go, and at least carry bravely and faithfully under the flag it has pleased you to choose, the name you bear, and the honor of your family. The present count, too, has played a part in politics in these troublous times when decisions were almost as hard to take, and one was torn between the desire to do something for one's country and the difficulty of detaching oneself from old traditions and memories. People whose grandfathers have died on the scaffold can hardly be expected to be enthusiastic about the Republic and the Marseillaise. Yet, if the nation wants the Republic, and every election accentuates that opinion, it is very difficult to fight against the current. When I first married, just after the Franco-Prussian War, there seemed some chance of the moderate men on both sides joining in a common effort against the radical movement, putting themselves at the head of it, and in that way directing and controlling. But very soon the different sections in Parliament defined themselves so sharply that any sort of compromise was difficult. My host was named deputy immediately after the war, 
and though by instinct, training, and association a royalist, and a personal friend of the Orléans family. He was one of a small group of liberal patriotic deputies, who might have supported loyally a moderate republic, had the other republicans not made their position untenable. There was an instinctive and unreasonable distrust of any of the old families, whose names and antecedents had kept them apart from any republican movement. We had pleasant afternoons in the big drawing-room. In the morning we did what we liked. The maîtresse de maison never appeared in the drawing-room till the twelve o'clock breakfast. I used to see her from my window, coming and going, sometimes walking, when she was making the round of the farm and garden, oftener in her little pony carriage, and occasionally in the automobile of her niece, who was staying in the house. She occupied herself very much with all the village, old people and children, everybody. After breakfast, we used to sit sometimes in the drawing room, the two ladies working, the Comte de S. reading his paper, and telling us anything interesting he found there. Both ladies had most artistic work. Madame de S., a church ornament, white satin ground with raised flowers and garlands, stretched, of course, on the large embroidery frames they all use. Her niece, Duchesse de E., had quite another installation in one of the windows, a table with all sorts of delicate little instruments. She was bookbinding, doing quite lovely things in imitation of the old French binding. It was a work that required most delicate manipulation, but she seemed to do it quite easily. I was rather humiliated with my little knit petticoats. Very hot work it is on a blazing July day. End of section five.